Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. William Che, the Nostrand Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of Michigan School of Medicine and most importantly, the former co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Today, we'll discuss his recent article, Evidence of Duodenal Epithelial Barrier Impairment and Increased Pyrotosis in Patients with Functional Dyspepsia on Confocal Laser Endomicroscopy and Ex Vivo Mucosal Analysis. This was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in November 2020, which was online earlier. Bill, welcome. Let's begin simply and set the stage for our readers. How common is functional dyspepsia, and how do you define and diagnose this disorder? Well, first, Brian, I I just want to congratulate you and Brennan on an incredible job uh, in terms of taking the journal forward. Uh, I know on behalf of Paul Moyetti and myself, we're, we're very proud of the job that you guys have done and are excited about all the new initiatives that you guys have put into place. And I'm really thrilled to have published this paper in the Red Journal. As you know, functional disorders, what are now referred to as disorders of gut-brain interaction, are incredibly common. And one of the most common is functional dyspepsia. These are patients with upper GI complaints that aren't attributable to some structural or biochemical abnormality, the most common symptoms of which are epigastric pain or discomfort, postprandial fullness, or early satiation. These symptoms, these upper GI symptoms, affect upwards of 20% of the U.S. population. So somewhere around one in five individuals in the United States endorse complaints that would be compatible with the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. We always joke that patients going into the endoscopy suite have uninvestigated dyspepsia. That is, they have dyspeptic symptoms, but um, haven't been formally diagnosed with functional dyspepsia. And then coming out of the endoscopy suite after they've had a normal endoscopy, they have functional dyspepsia. Well, I like that. That just shows how common it is. And as you've already kind of mentioned, you know, we've learned so much about the etiology and pathophysiology of these disorders of gut-brain interaction, you know, especially IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. But why did you choose functional dyspepsia as your area of interest for this study? You know, Brian, we really felt that functional dyspepsia was an unmet need, both investigatively and clinically. In other words, despite the fact that it's so common, as I've already discussed, we really have a relatively poor understanding of pathophysiology. And think about this. While we have many FDA-approved drugs for conditions like irritable bowel syndrome or chronic idiopathic constipation, we have no FDA-approved drugs for functional dyspepsia. And it really speaks to the knowledge gap, both in terms of pathophysiology and a regulatory pathway to an approved drug for this incredibly common condition. So we felt an obligation to study patients with functional dyspepsia in the hopes of enhancing our understanding of what's causing these common symptoms. And in that way, open the door to the possibility of developing novel therapies for functional dyspepsia. That's great. Bill, as we introduced you, and I read the title of your article, you know, your title says so much. There's so much information right in the title, but one term in the title may be new to some of our listeners. 
I think they maybe are familiar with apoptosis, but what is pyrotosis? How do you define it and why is it important for our listeners? Yeah, pyroptosis was also a new concept for me. It's something that I learned about from our collaborator, uh, Julia Liu. And I think the listeners will have heard of apoptosis or pre-programmed cell death, which is an important mechanism by which cells turn over. On the other hand, pyroptosis is a relatively unknown concept. It's a term that refers to inflammatory cell death. So in response to environmental cues, inflammation occurs and cell death occurs. Now, this is an important mechanism of cell dropout in the epithelial barrier that separates the luminal microenvironment from everything that's happening in the mucosa and submucosa. So just to provide you with an example, salmonella enteritis when salmonella breaches the cell and gets into the cell, it actually triggers pyroptosis, which is a way of clearing the infection. In addition, increased levels of pyroptosis have been identified in patients with inflammatory bowel disease and, interestingly, IBS. So great introduction there, a great kind of baseline. And also just to maybe even set the stage even more, many of our listeners are probably familiar with the concept of post-infectious IBS and post-infectious functional dyspepsia. So that's important. Bill, another critical technique used in this study was confocal laser endomicroscopy. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why is it important for assessing barrier function? Absolutely. Uh, the endoscopy geeks in the uh, listening crowd will be very familiar with confocal laser endomicroscopy or CLE. But for those of us that work in the functional disorders, it's a relatively new concept to think about utilizing CLE as an investigative tool for patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction. There have been a couple of studies utilizing CLE as a means of uh, identifying permeability, abnormalities, and immune activation in patients with IBS. This is the first study to use CLE to evaluate patients with functional dyspepsia. And CLE is, at its essence, a magnification technique that allows you real-time during endoscopy to visualize the gut epithelium. So you can visualize intraepithelial gaps, which was the focus of this particular paper. You can also visualize actual cellular injury real time in response to various types of antigens or luminal constituents, as was done by a group in Germany in patients with IBS in response to different types of food antigens. So it's a means by which to obtain a highly magnified detailed view of the gut epithelium real time uh, in patients with conditions compared to controls as we did or in response to various types of luminal stimuli to see if it induces an immune response or cellular injury. So Bill, thank you. And for our listeners, this is really like looking at things underneath a microscope and there are some beautiful images in the article published in the Red Journal. So Bill, thank you for that. Tell us how you exactly did the study. I know there were so many different components, but if you could just briefly lead our listeners through the different stages of this important study. It is a bit of a complex study. It's a pilot study that really was attempting to identify information for further studies. And what we did is we screened patients with functional dyspepsia to make sure that they had an adequate level of symptoms. We wanted at least moderate dyspeptic symptoms. Those individuals then underwent an upper endoscopy 
usually as part of their routine clinical evaluation, by the way. And during the time of endoscopy, they underwent confocal laser endomicroscopy to evaluate the epithelium for number and width of epithelial gaps. We particularly focused CLE on the first, second, and third portion of the duodenum. We also obtained biopsies for routine histological evaluation to look for inflammatory cells, for examples, example like eosinophils and mast cells. And we did a series of translational studies. So we actually used the tissue to do evaluation of gut permeability studies using transepithelial electrical resistance testing. We also looked at tight junction proteins like cloudins and occludins. And finally, we did an evaluation for pyroptosis. So we used caspase staining to identify pyroptotic cells in the gut epithelium from those mucosal biopsies. So really neat when you think about it, you're going from the patient and their symptoms all the way down to the cellular level, to the biochemical level as well, to really identify and measure these patients. Just fascinating. So with all those multiple stages in this pilot study, which is really just amazing, what did you find? So first off, our population was patients with functional dyspepsia or healthy volunteers just undergoing an endoscopy for things completely unrelated to dyspepsia, like globus sensation or as part of an iron deficiency workup. Those were the most common controls. Uh, but we had 18 patients with functional dyspepsia and 20 healthy controls that underwent this series of studies. At the end of the day, what we found was individuals with functional dyspepsia had dramatically increased numbers of intraepithelial gaps in the third portion of the duodenum compared to healthy controls. We also found that patients with functional dyspepsia had alterations in permeability or leaky gut by the transepithelial electrical resistance testing with some modest changes as well in some of the tight junction proteins. Finally, we found that Patients with functional dyspepsia were almost three times as likely as the healthy controls to have evidence of pyroptosis. So the number of pyroptotic cells was dramatically increased in the functional dyspepsia patients compared to healthy controls. At the end of the day, this all boils down to and all points in a direction of altered permeability being potentially important mechanism, or at least an important finding, we hope mechanism, in patients with functional dyspepsia when compared to healthy controls or not healthy controls, but non-dyspeptic controls. Right, so Bill, you kind of beat me to the punch. You know, we've changed our terminology over the years and we almost started our discussion about how we don't call these functional bowel disorders, but now disorders of gut-brain interaction. So with this key concept, this key finding of alterations in intestinal permeability in FD patients, how do you think that changes the way we think about this disorder? Well, it definitely changes the way we think about these disorders, but hopefully it embraces a lot of the concepts that have come before. So if you think about uh, these disorders of brain-gut uh, interaction, we've oftentimes attributed them to alterations in motility and visceral sensation. And more recently, we've talked about brain-gut interactions. Well, how might those things occur? Well, think about this. If we take a step back and we think about the luminal microenvironment, so the microbiota, bile acids, neurotransmitters released by enterochromin cells, all the things that are happening in the lumen of the GI tract, 
how does that influence what's what's happening in terms of activation of the immune system in the gut and the enteric nervous system? Well, one hypothesis, which I think is highly plausible, is through that gut epithelium and the barrier that it poses to between the, the luminal microenvironment and the gut immune system and enteric nervous system. So in other words, a leakier gut will allow antigens, um, toxins, inflammatory cells to penetrate the gut epithelium and interact with that gut immune system, which when activated can lead to changes in motor function, sensation, and I dare say, even brain gut interactions. Because remember that what happens in the brain clearly influences what happens in the gut. But the other way is true as well. What's happening in the gut is very likely to be influencing what's happening in the brain. So in other words, what's happening in the gut may well influence cognitive emotional function that we otherwise have attributed to just normal brain activity. It's actually much more complicated than we've given it credit for. And I used to always joke with uh, my trainees that the gut is the center of the universe, but it turns out that may actually turn out to be true. It may very well turn out to be that the gut will be the center of the human universe. Well, but we always knew that. <laughs> now you just you have and I always knew it. I'm not sure others believed it. That's great. Bill, you've kind of alluded to this as well, but now we've got this important finding in FD, and there's been some preliminary data, as you mentioned earlier, about IBS. So do you think this might be the key factor in patients with other disorders of gut-brain interaction? Do you think this is the unifying link? Boy, the road is paved with such hypotheses. I mean, if you think about it, you and I came through the last 20, 25 years. How many times have we heard that this is the cornerstone? This is the, the capstone, the key that's going to be the thing that explains all of these conditions. I think at the end of the day, this will be one factor of many that explains why patients develop these symptoms. At the end of the day, I do believe that there is heterogeneity and that symptoms are common themes in terms of how we interact with, think about, diagnose and treat patients. But the etiology or mechanistic explanation for those symptoms is quite diverse. I do think that permeability um, may well provide a mechanism that would cross bounds and provide an explanation for a wide range of conditions, upper conditions, lower conditions, but we need a lot more research to understand what role, if any, this plays. And perhaps even more importantly, what drives those changes in permeability? It may be that that will really be the key to, um, to new drug development or other natural therapies that might be beneficial to patients with a wide range of different types of disorders of gut-brain interaction. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So much to learn and so much to do. I want to shift gears a little bit, but this still focuses on your paper. And we recognize that in large part due to your research efforts, Diet and dietary changes can be very important for patients with IBS, irritable bile syndrome. And in this study, you tried so nicely to control the diet of FED patients, so to minimize variables. Do you think that diet plays a role in the pathophysiology of FD and FD symptom generation? You know, it's a really interesting and very important question because diet may well be a modifiable risk factor, not only in reducing the triggering for the development of symptoms, but also in regards to the actual pathophysiology of disease. 
we have a long ways to go before we prove that. But if you use, for example, the FODMAP hypothesis, you know, people think of FODMAPs as an important trigger for symptoms in patients with IBS, which no doubt is true. In other words, this idea of fermentation and the production of gas, which leads to luminal distension and short-chain fatty acids, which alter the, or create a substrate for an osmotic burden, as well as a substrate for changes in the microbiome, et cetera, are all true and potentially underlie why they're important triggers for, for symptoms in patients with IBS and perhaps even functional dyspepsia, by the way. But it's much more complicated than that. You know, there's some interesting translational basic science work, animal work, that suggests that a high FODMAP diet in animals, for example, leads to increased levels of lipopolysaccharide. It might be that foods actually alter the microbiome, the microbiota, in a way that makes them more toxic and actually leads to the perpetuation of disease. So like you said, we have a lot to learn, but we should think more broadly than of food as simply a trigger for the development of symptoms. We are very interested in this topic. We are doing a lot of studies, both mechanistic studies, as well as studies to better understand um, the potential role of diet as a treatment for patients with conditions like IBS and functional dyspepsia. And just to follow that up, although you've kind of answered that, just thinking about diet and dietary interventions and some of your findings from the study, do you think we should start changing how we treat FD patients uh, in terms of dietary issues? Yeah, you know, that to me, as I mentioned earlier, Brian, I think is an incredible unmet need. Think about it. We have hardly any diet recommendations for patients with functional dyspepsia, and yet we know that even using the Rome subclassification of postprandial distress syndrome, so patients with meal-related symptoms, or epigastric pain syndrome, which is uh, epigastric pain or discomfort not necessarily associated with eating a meal. But when you look at the proportion of patients that have PDS or PDS plus EPS overlap, it's the vast majority of patients with functional dyspepsia. So what patients are telling us is that the vast majority of them with functional dyspepsia, their symptoms are somehow related to food. And yet we have no organized strategy for patients with functional dyspepsia in regards to diet. Are we ready to be able to make recommendations at this point? Probably not. But should this be pursued as an important area of research in regards to functional dyspepsia? I think it's long overdue. We're way past the point where we should have recognized the importance of diet and functional dyspeptic patients and done studies. Uh, I'd say that we're probably at least five to seven, if not 10 years ahead in IBS of where we are in functional dyspepsia, but it's high time for us to start focusing on understanding the role of diet in patients with functional dyspepsia. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. Bill, as we wind down one last question and without divulging uh, your strategies, What's the next step for you and your research team on this issue in intestinal permeability and FD? Can you provide us some insight? Yeah, so we're definitely going to be doing a follow-on series of studies. We're just in the throes of figuring out exactly how we're going to fund this next series of studies, but we're very interested in the role of food antigens, diet constituents, and their effect on barrier function in patients with functional dyspepsia. So very much following the lead of the Fritcher Ravens group in Germany, but focusing on functional dyspepsia. So we're interested in that. 
We're also very interested in potential pharmacological interventions as a means of intervening in patients with barrier defects. And I won't divulge uh, what we're up to, but um, suffice it to say that we have a couple of protocols written and we're currently pursuing funding to be able to complete those studies. We're also very interested, as you know, Brian, we have our paper coming up on our randomized comparative effectiveness trial of kiwi fruit and prunes in patients with constipation. We're very interested in natural treatments for patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction, and we're pursuing some additional work in that vein. And then, of course, we are still doing quite a bit of work in biomarker-based strategies for patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction just in general. So our group, I'm very proud to say, is extremely busy. We have some very exciting things to share with the GI audience and patients in general, and hopefully we'll be publishing a lot of our work in the Red Journal. Uh, We are looking forward to this. Thank you, Bill. First of all, for such, as always, an amazing discussion. I learned a lot. I know our listeners learned a lot. And also just thank you for all your wonderful contributions to the field. Any last thoughts for our listeners? The one thing I'd say is I think a lot of times patients and doctors that care for these disorders feel really hopeless. And just want to tell you that we really are making progress. It's going to be some time before we finally get to a solution that is a more precision-based solution where we do diagnostic testing that to rule in disease based on pathophysiology, but it's coming. It's coming. So keep your ear to the ground as the literature evolves. The way that we'll be managing these patients in 10 years is going to be very different than the way that we're managing them right now. Bill, once again, I can't thank you enough for such a great podcast. We really appreciate everything you've done and looking forward to your next publication. Thanks so much, Brian.